Good morning, and welcome to episode 550 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the amazing play index at baseballreference.com. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh, who is a very good sabermetric writer with virtually no BS in his writings. Hi, Ben. <laughs> Hello. How are you? Okay. My my writings are for Grantland.com, we should mention. Um, I am I am well. I am looking forward to talking to you about baseball. <laughs> so I went to uh, I went to the Giants Nationals game uh-huh. and I was in uh, at, at one point I was in uh, one of the standing room only sections and uh, was talking to a woman next to me and suddenly in the middle of her conversation she stopped and she points to something behind me and says, oh, that's a really cute sign. I bet that'll get on TV. And I didn't even have to turn around. I didn't even have to look then. I knew. And I turned around, and indeed it was a man with a sign fashioned out of a broom (laughs) that said how sweet it is. (laughs) Of course. Well, see, that's it. The, The people love that headline. I thought about walking around. There were a lot of people with brooms. And I had an idea that I did not go through with of just simply walking around and anytime someone with a I saw someone with a broom saying how sweet it is and seeing what <laughs> and seeing. Sure, you would have gotten a lot of high fives. Probably. Uh, all right. Uh, anything to to start with? Well, I will mention my tweet which you responded to about Terrence Gore yesterday. I'll share the results. I asked Twitter how many regular season games it thought Terrence Gore, postseason sensation, will play next season and over the course of his whole career and got many responses. And yours was the most negative response or tied with the most negative. You were you were one of only two respondents to say that he would play zero regular season games next year and zero regular season games for the rest of his whole career. The averages were 23 regular season games next year and 150 career. So explain to me. Well, for the 23 seems ludicrous. There's no way he's playing 23 games next year, right? That does seem too high, yes. And one of the reasons why I asked this is because I was kind of curious whether with all the attention on Gore, who is pretty much an exclusive pinch runner, whether people would... On, uh, overrate his career prospects because, of course, he is probably, what, one of the worst position players ever to get a major league plate appearance? Is that fair to say, do you think? I mean, just based on the fact that he was hitting, you know, OPSing 540-something at high A and and then uh, got a few plate appearances at triple A and wasn't completely terrible, but compared to, I mean, he's He's basically Herb Washington, except Herb Washington never got a plate appearance in the majors, and Gore has had a couple. So do you think that that is a fair assessment, that he is one of the worst position player hitters ever? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've never seen him field, and so he's fast, so it's conceivable that he is an elite defender. Yeah, and- I don't think he is, or at least I, I saw Someone asked Keith Law that, whether his speed translates to defense, and he said not so much, no. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think you could, uh, look, when you say one of the worst, yes, you have not given me a denominator. He is definitely one of the X worst ever. Right, Uh, everyone is. Yeah, everyone is. 
uh, well, I'm not, but everyone who is at it is, um, uh, cause you did give me a numerator and mm-hmm. I am not one. Uh, however, uh, yeah, he is, he, you could make, you might, you might be able to spend an afternoon and show that he is the worst conceivably, but uh-huh. pro- probably not the worst, but he is one of the worst. Yes. Mm-hmm. And there so... is, there is no way he plays a game outside of September next year, in my opinion. Yeah, so I, I considered limiting my question to September, whether he would ever play a non-expanded roster game. But but based on the fact that the average response was 23 games, that suggests that people think that he will play a pre-September game because he won't get into every September game. So that, that suggests that there would be some pre-September games. So, so make the case for zero and zero because you would think that based on what he's done this postseason that he would at least be on a September roster if he's if he's on a team with any chance of making the playoffs or even if he's not necessarily all right so here's my case for zero and zero the first case is that uh it's far more likely that he gets zero than any specific number Uh and so I decided to go with the mode I I I instead of trying to give you the number that I thought was the closest to the average of all the universes I wanted to give you the most likely, and the most likely number is zero, right? Mm-hmm. Just, yes. just, just logically, that's probably true. Um, so. And and I wouldn't have done. I mean, you could make the same case if you had asked me how many games, um, say, uh, you know, I, I don't know who's a player, Joe Panic. You could have asked me the same thing about Joe Panic, and logically, maybe zero is logically the correct. I mean, maybe it's more likely that. Something happens to keep him from playing in the majors next year than that he hits any particular number. I don't know. So, uh, so zero seemed like, like the uh, a safe a safe guess, but it also holds up in in uh, just based on Gore's actual situation uh, for a few reasons. One is that the Royals already have Gerard Dyson, um, so as far as teams needing an elite speed guy. They need him less than most, so it's not an automatic that he would make the roster. Um, and uh, you know, there are. It's not like even with expanded rosters, you do have forty-man limits. You have various reasons that you might not have him up there uh, if you don't need him. And they might, not, arguably, they might not need him. Um, and the Royals might not be contenders next year. He might. Um, he might be hurt next year. Uh, there are all sorts of reasons that he might not be available in September or necessary in September. Um, and uh, I think that uh, the other thing is that, um, well, this is more like right now they're using him in the postseason. But if they had anything better than Raul Abanez, mm-hmm. uh, I doubt he would have made the postseason roster this year either. Yeah, um, it was more, it was sort of more the function of them not having. Um, I mean, Raul Abanez is ha, didn't have a hit in more than a month, and he didn't have an extra base hit in two months. And that, to me, if they'd had even Brennan Bosch, like the Angels had, I could see them having chosen that over Gore to have a left-handed, a left-handed bat. Now, as it turns out, Gore has been useful. He's been exciting. I'm certainly thrilled that they have him. I think they're probably glad that they had him, have him. Uh, but I don't know that it was a an automatic that he was going to get used in this role. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, you know, 
I think that it's I think it's more likely that he gets one one game in his career than zero. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's more likely he gets uh, even if you broke it into range, like say zero or one to ten or eleven to fifty or fifty one to a hundred or a hundred to five hundred. I still would probably take zero over any any of those tiers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be. I mean, people compared him to Joey Gatwright or or Tony Campana and, and other speedsters who couldn't really hit, but he is a worse hitter than than all of those people. So it would be kind of fun if if he did find his way to a roster just every September, or every October, if if the team that needed him most for a playoff run just acquired him somehow. And he came back into the skies like Howie's Comet every every September. That would be that would be fun, but that probably won't happen because he's under team control for you know as long as the Royals want him now for several years. And <clears throat> and by the time that he's a free agent, by the time he gets to minor league free agency time or major league free agency time, he will probably not be valuable anymore. Yeah. He's probably yeah. got a pretty early expiration date and that he has one tool and that tool is is a skill that declines pretty much right away for most guys so he will be yeah he sorry he will be slower next year Mm -hmm. he'll still be fast but he will be slower next year we saw with billy hamilton this year that even being the fastest runner perhaps in major league history is no guarantee of huge base running value um and uh, although i mean uh, you know we saw last summer 2013 it looked like hamilton was unstoppable would never get thrown out it was just it was unbelievable and this year he had a poor stolen base rate and like 56 steals which is just not that special mm-hmm. uh, and and gathright uh, i know that you uh, you you alluded to this so gore this year was 23 in high a with a 550 ops gathright when he was 23 Got 60 major league plate appearances. He uh, played in AAA and hit 326 mm-hmm. uh, over 260 plate appearances. He played in AA and hit 341 with a 399 <laughs> on base percentage and 390 381 slug. So he was ve- he was very good mm-hmm. at those levels um, when he was 23. I'm not sure about Tony Campana. Tony Campana can't hit, so mm-hmm. maybe maybe it wouldn't work as well. But yeah. Anyway, it's uh, it's a strange thing because you have a guy who is getting a ton of attention in the postseason and has the potential to be some sort of playoff hero if if the right situation happens to arise, and yet we almost certainly just won't see him next year. He will just go away again, no matter what he does. But at least for five months, for uh-huh. sure. Campana at 23 was also at high A. Uh, just like Gore, and he hit 284 with a 650 on base uh, OPS. So he wasn't mm-hmm. very good. So that's a that's the best case mm-hmm. for. Wow, Campana's got 500 plate appearances in his career. Yeah, not not just 250 games, uh-huh. but 500 plate appearances. Yeah. All right. What did you want to talk about before we broke down Terrence Gore's career? Um, so let's see, I guess two things, uh, one from each series. Kershaw will pitch tonight against the Cardinals. Mm-hmm. And there were two good pieces written about, um, two very loud narratives about Clayton Kershaw. One of the, one of the narratives was that the Cardinals own Kershaw because his stats against the Cardinals have been so much worse than against everybody else in 
some non-small number of starts. I forget how many starts. Uh, they've, they've hit him, and like literally nobody else in the league has hit him. Um, and the other is that they were tipping pitches. And this was something that even before it, uh, well, I don't know what they were, I don't know if they were saying this on the broadcast, because as, as you and I talked about, we missed the crucial eight-minute period where all the wildness <laughs> happened. Uh, but when I saw my Twitter feed from the events themselves, there were people saying it looks like the Cardinals know what's coming. Uh, there were allusions to this this sense that they were just in total control and uh, were like, uh, if not, you know, maybe being tipped. Maybe they just had a read on him or something. And so that's the other one: is that the Cardinals were uh, were able to crack his code and he or he was tipping pitches. And so in in either one of these narratives today would be an extremely dangerous start for Clayton Kershaw. He would either be going up against a team that owns him or a team that sees right through him. Uh, and so there were two good pieces written about these. One was by Russell Carlton, who looked at the ownership, and one was by Jeff Sullivan, who watched that inning um, and broke it down on a pitch-by-pitch uh, level uh, to see what actually caused Kershaw to get hit and um, what we would conclude about the Cardinals' at-bats. Did you read either of these pieces? I read Russell's, and I read Mike Petriello's look at what Kershaw did. I did not read Jeff's yet. Okay. So let's start with Russell's, uh, because Russell's is uh, a, little bit, a little bit easier to talk about, a little simpler to talk about. Um, in a conversation that we've had with pitchers before. So Russell looks at his numbers, which are, of course, very, very poor against the Dodgers, uh, and breaks it down into the, into the peripherals. And uh, did I say Dodgers? I might have said Dodgers. I meant Cardinals. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, and then it breaks it down into the peripherals. So uh, if you look at the things that are not ERA, uh, you see that Clayton Kershaw has pitched extremely well by the traditional measures against the Cardinals. He has struck out nearly as many batters uh, against the Cardinals. He has walked only slightly more batters. He has allowed no more home runs. His FIP is 2.78 compared to 2.46 against everybody else. And while that's obviously worse, it A, doesn't represent anything like ownership. 2.78 would be a Cy Young caliber FIP. And B, the Cardinals have been really good over the last four years. So, of course, it will be somewhat higher. It's the, one of the best offenses in baseball. Um, and the uh, the only difference here is BABIP. Uh, the the rest of the league has a 280 BABIP. The Cardinals have a 343 BABIP against Kershaw. He has been incredibly good in every aspect of his game, except that singles have been falling in. And mm-hmm. so that makes you ask the follow-up question, well, maybe singles are falling in because he's been getting hit harder. Um, but the default in a sample like this is to assume that Babbitt's over the course of, you know, seven starts or whatever, ten starts, is uh, a, a product of luck mm-hmm. or circumstances outside his control. So, convincing to you? Yeah, I think so. As Russell points out, you would expect Kershaw and any pitcher to be slightly worse against the Cardinals than he would against a league average offense so his numbers would be slightly worse you would think the Cardinals have been consistently one of the best offenses in the league over the last several years so you'd you'd expect to see something there and 
so yeah, I, I, I buy the, the random variation argument. It's, I couldn't completely rule out the idea that there's something to it, but it seems to me that the more likely is that there's not, that you could find with any pitcher, you could find something like this for some team. Uh, and it stands to reason that one team would just purely by chance have a better success rate against Clayton Kershaw over a small sample. Yeah, and especially when it is something that we think of as actually being by chance. Uh, I mean, it's, it is possible that a guy uh, is giving up a lot of line drives because he's leaving pitches fat over the plate. It, that mm-hmm. is possible. However, yep. it's, it's really hard to imagine a pitcher who is so, so well able, so, so able to thread through all these dangers such that he is able to strike out just as many batters yeah. And allow just as few home runs, and yet there's like, like he's he's getting crushed on singles. Like it's hard to imagine the the sort of Venn diagram of uh-huh. this guy who can control <laughs> these three huge parts of pitching, and then this one that we know not to take seriously. He is completely helpless in, and uh, and not assume that there's that that is that that is a fluke. It's hard to imagine that that particular threading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right, so uh, so Kershaw should not have any issue with the Cardinals tonight, other than he might have with any major league team because anybody with a bat is dangerous. All right, and so, he's on short rest, and he's on short rest. Uh, oh, we should talk about that. Yeah, we'll talk about that. So, all right, so now that does not preclude the possibility that the Cardinals, in the what seventh inning of Friday's game, mm-hmm. did own him. It is. Uh, I don't think Russell would purport to have answered the question of that one inning. Uh, maybe they owned him for eight minutes. And so uh, we turn to Jeff Sullivan's piece, and Jeff looks at every pitch. And the idea that they knew what was coming, what, when you hear that, what would you think that looks like? Having not seen the action, what, is, what does it look like that they know what's coming? Uh, I guess that they don't miss when they swing at pitches. Mm. Or they don't swing at bad pitches, either one. So good takes and like authoritative swings or Yeah, sure. I mean, it's sort of subjective, but you could look at it statistically and say they don't have a lot of out of zone swings or whatever or you or they aren't missing on swings in the strike zone or you could say that they just look comfortable that certain mm-hmm. swings look better than others. All right. So it's it's hard to to summarize a pitch by pitch account of like eight batters and so I won't but the well I guess I will summarize I won't recap his recap uh but um basically the idea you get which you don't even really need Jeff's words Jeff looks sort of looks at the purpose behind every pitch the execution of every pitch and maybe what the hitter was looking for at every pitch shows you the pitch and then he kind of gives you his assessment of, of what went wrong or right. And I think even without the assessment of what went wrong or right, you you would pretty much draw the same conclusions when you watch this slowed down and pitch by pitch. Um, his There was no assessment that he had where I had something different in mind. It, it, it seems pretty, which is my way of saying it seems pretty obvious that when you're watching it, uh, uh, what Jeff is saying is correct. Um, so there's a few things that go wrong for Kershaw. He, uh, he does miss fastball location, um, probably more often than you expect from Kershaw. Now, I think that if you watched any Kershaw start, 
with this in mind, you would think that he missed fastball location more than you expect from Kershaw. You don't notice how often he misses fastball location, but just like every pitcher, he does miss fastball location. So uh, some of these hits came because he missed on fastball location. To Holiday, basically, he threw a pitch in Holiday's sweet spot because he was behind in the count. Holiday hit it. That's not particularly shocking. With Peralta, uh, and, and that one he didn't even really miss location. It was just he threw it where Holiday likes it. Um, with Johnny Peralta, he misses location, leaves a fastball right in the middle of the plate. That is the pitch that everybody in the world knows Johnny Peralta hits. There, I mean, you can't blame anybody on this one, except it was a bad location. Johnny Peralta mm-hmm. hit it in a fastball count. So, so far we're up to two batters, nothing suspicious. Uh, Yadier Molina, uh, he leaves a slider up, uh, and he leaves a slider up in a count where Molina probably would have been expecting a fastball. And so the slider up actually plays kind of perfectly into what he's looking for, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, because it's not a slider down, it's not a changeup, it's not a fastball up. All right, so that's a bad pitch. Uh, Matt Adams, he throws uh, a... Basically, uh, he gets ahead of Adams, 0-2, uh, Adams looks bad on a swing, and then he throws a slider, which is basically the same slider he struck Adams out with earlier in the game. It's a very good pitch, but he's thrown the pitch to Adams three or four times. It's not a great swing by Adams. You wouldn't look at it and say ownership. You wouldn't say he knew it was coming. He just sort of dropped the bat on the ball uh, and hit a grounder through the infield. So that's not suspicious. Then he strikes out Pete Cosma and just completely destroys Pete Cosma. Like, Cosma looks stupid check swing, does not know what's coming. Uh, John Jay uh, slaps a fastball the other way. It's good hitting. There's nothing really to it. It wasn't authoritative. Uh, and he was behind... Uh, he. Oh, and one, one other thing about John Jay is that he, uh, the umpire cost Kershaw a strike. Kershaw completely buckled him on a curveball and uh, in, the, in the middle of the strike zone. The umpire called it a ball. And so the buckling suggests he didn't know it was coming. The umpire's call put Kershaw in a fastball count instead of a uh, maybe a slider or a put-away count. Throws a fastball, Jay, slaps it the other way, good piece of hitting. He destroys Tavares, three pitches, mm-hmm. complete complete dominance. And as uh, Don Manningly said later, as Jeff uh, writes, this is basically probably the plate appearance that kept Kershaw in the game. He looked so good against Tavares and really had looked so good against Cosma two batters earlier that you would not have thought that he was being dominated based on these at-bats. And then he throws a pitch to Matt Carpenter that is uh, in the fat part of the zone. It's a missed location. It's perfectly hittable, and Carpenter hit it. Carpenter's a really good hitter. So uh, I guess I did recap the recap, but uh, the basic idea is that upon rewatching these in a, a little bit of a more deliberate way, you see a perfectly reasonable reason for every hit. Some of them were missed pitches. Some of them was good hitting. Some of them was a little bit of luck. Some of them was bad umpiring. And mixed in there were situations where Kershaw looked just as good and the Cardinals looked just as hopeless. Uh, I don't see anything remotely pitch-tipping like here. Mm-hmm. Nope, neither do I. And Mike wrote about it at DodgersDigest.com, and he looked at it in a slightly different way. He didn't go pitch by pitch, although he did single out some individual pitches, but he just looked at the numbers, and there was a clear difference 
in terms of things that Kershaw was doing. His his horizontal release point all of a sudden changed relative to the earlier innings. His percentage of grooved pitches, which is something that you can find at Brooks Baseball, which is basically just a, a pitch thrown in the middle of the plate, middle middle height, middle horizontal location. That skyrocketed up in that inning, and uh, he started throwing a bunch of fastballs, more fastballs than he had thrown earlier in the game, which uh, you know could could mean that he just got in a, a mental rut and it was a sequencing thing, or maybe he just didn't have a great feel for his breaking ball, or he didn't think he did at that point. But you can look at all of these things that changed in what Kershaw was doing, and that seems like it's an adequate explanation for the fact that he had a bad inning. I don't think you have to read into it. I, I mean, it's it's strange to see Kershaw get hit, and so maybe it's natural to come up with some reason. We're used to Kershaw being great always, and so when Kershaw is not great, maybe it's natural to think that what changed is the hitters, and Kershaw was still great, but the hitters were ready for him in some way that hitters usually are not, but it looks to me like Kershaw just had a bad inning. It it happens. Maybe this is part of why we advocate taking starters out early. Sometimes they get tired. Sometimes they just lose it. So Kershaw has got a true talent, according to Pagoda, of a 2.36 ERA. Uh, uh, given the fact that the Cardinals um, have hit him hard, does that affect, in your opinion, his projected ERA against them at all? I mean, even even having debunked these two things, is there any possibility that right now he's sitting in the clubhouse scared because he has bought into the narrative? He thinks that the Cardinals have ownership over him. Is there anything whatsoever? Does your 2.36 become even a 2.37, or does it is it a total non-issue? Should well, I guess it, I guess what I'm saying is that is there any reason for anybody to ever write that this matters? I don't think so. It, I mean, it, my 2.36 goes up just because it's the Cardinals. It's the Cardinals, and, and it's yeah. a good Although team. the Cardinals, they have a bad lineup this year, though. They actually uh-huh. had a below-average lineup this year. Okay, well, then maybe not. So, yeah, I I don't think so. I, I don't know. I have a hard time imagining that a team is really in the best pitcher in baseball's head, the, the guy who's going to win the MVP award, the Cy Young award, is amazing, uh, probably... Probably, I mean, if if we look at the numbers and think he's been fine against the Cardinals, then probably he thinks he's been fine against the Cardinals, just remembering what he's done to the Cardinals and maybe being, uh, you know, lipped and blooped with singles, but striking them out and not walking guys. I'm sure he's aware of how he's done against them. So I I don't think so. I, I wouldn't really change my projection much at all or at all. The... Uh... The Cardinals here, uh, this was tucked into to Russell's piece. It wasn't really part of the piece, but they went from, I think, third in runs scored last year or maybe third in offense or something like that or maybe fifth to uh, to 20. Let me think. Let me find it. Uh, from third last year to 24th this year, which uh, partly is because they lost their, their, bab, uh, their uh, runners in scoring position freak show mojo right but but i didn't i hadn't really like i knew the cardinals didn't have as good a year this year as they did last year but that huge huge drop off sort of snuck up on me and i guess it's partly because alan craig was Mm -hmm. not a a star 
was first quite terrible and then was gone. And it's mm-hmm. partly because uh, Yadier Molina was no longer a, a superstar hitter. And it was partly was, because Carlos Beltran was gone. Molina was hurt for a while. Molina was hurt for a while. Uh, and then Carlos Beltran was gone and replaced with Oscar Tavares, who never really uh, uh, became an impact hitter. And and I guess uh, maybe swapping out David Freese for Colton Wong hurts a little bit. Uh, so, uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Uh, all right. So, uh, Kershaw on short rest. We had this exact conversation last year. The yes. exact same one, except it was... It was Ricky Nolasco was the other option instead of Dan Heron. Dan Heron is better than Ricky Nolasco, so I guess it does change the math a little bit. Although, gosh, they're all very similar, those two. Uh, but this feels like the exception to our our uh, our reluctance to go to guys on short rest, right? I mean, there yeah. is there is a gap between pitchers where you can assign the short rest penalty to the guy and still have him be better. And that's that seems to be clearly the case between Kershaw and Heron. The only the biggest argument I would say against it is that um, in this scenario, best case, you win this game, and then you have Granke pitching on full rest. You win that game, and then you have to start the NLCS without your best pitchers. Uh, so Ryu presumably would start game one. Uh, Kershaw would start game two, and now Granke can only go once. Um, Whereas if, if I mean, Dan Heron, probably the Dodgers with Dan Heron might have actually been the favorite or not a huge underdog against the Cardinals in game four. Uh, and if they had won that, then I guess you would still would have to go with Kershaw. And then Kershaw wouldn't be able to pitch until game three. So actually, yeah, that doesn't even add up. Mm-hmm. I guess it just depends whether you, yeah, eh, I'd have to think about that one. But you're going to have Ryu starting game one. And you'll have Kershaw pitching twice, but Cranky only once mm-hmm. in LCS. So maybe that's a little bit of a loss. I don't know. Uh, anyway, though, pretty obvious move, right? I think so. Yeah, Dan Heron pitched pretty well in the second half. He was he was quite good. But 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 you're right. I mean, even if you penalize Kershaw for whatever the penalty is, he is still going to be better than the next best guy. And so it's. It's sort of dangerous in that, uh, you know, on short rest, this might be more of a bullpen game than it would be usually, and that has not been a good thing for the Dodgers, is not a good thing for the Dodgers. So uh, if if Kershaw were to leave early, they might be in trouble anyway. But yeah, I, I, I don't have a problem with their going with Kershaw and Granke in elimination games. Last year, the Dodgers were ahead two games to one. That's the difference. And so uh-huh. it it actually mattered uh, a bit more to tease out what it would mean for the NLCS. In this case, it doesn't matter quite so much because you have to win them both uh, just to go on. Um, all right. So that'll happen today. The Giants and Nationals will also happen. Uh, that didn't seem likely to me. That Yesterday was the one game that you would circle and say the Giants can probably win this one yeah. the other game in every other game they had the pitching mismatch against them uh they were at home yesterday they had their ace going yesterday uh doug fister is very good but he is uh in most people's mind the number three or four starter on the team um and uh the giants lost uh on a on a bunt it seems like pitchers throwing the ball mm-hmm. plays a disproportionate role <laughs> in postseason games doesn't it 
Yeah, I wanted to write about that. This is something that I, I looked at last year because there is this perception that pitchers, when they're throwing anywhere but home plate, they are wild and they're more likely to throw the ball away. And you can think of examples when they've done that and it's been costly, like you know Mariano Rivera in 2001. Before the Luis Gonzalez hit, there was Rivera throwing the ball into the outfield and uh, that was costly. And, and it does seem to happen often and I looked at this last year, and it doesn't really show up in the numbers. Like, if you just look at throwing errors as a as a rate uh, or as a percentage of assists, it doesn't really show up. And that's, I think, because pitchers have so many easy throwing opportunities. There are so many times when a pitcher assist is just an underhand lob from 10 feet away. And every now and then, that goes wrong also. And... Maybe that's why we remember it so much, because it seems so easy that when a pitcher screws up one of those lobs, it sticks in our heads. But it might also be that they are less accurate when they're throwing to second or third, and I would certainly buy that, but it's kind of swallowed in the numbers by all of those easy throws to first, and so pitcher error rates don't show up as as all that crazy compared to other positions. But but yeah, you're right. On this particular play, it wasn't so much the throwing wide as it was the decision to throw at all because the, the runner was basically there while the throw was still in the air. And maybe Buster Posey has some responsibility for that in that it seemed like you could hear him saying three as Bumgarner was going to get the ball. And it's the, the catcher's job there probably to direct the play. And so uh, you can't really blame Bumgarner for that and and maybe Sandoval should have tried to come off the bag instead of staying on the bag but but yeah it was it was a pivotal play although as it turned out the Giants couldn't score anyway so I don't know that they would have won regardless and and this of course doesn't hold up logically uh the the whatever happened next wouldn't have happened next Uh you know but they did give up a hit and so you know, if you, I mean, if, if he had gone to first, there would have been two on with one out, a runner on third. Odds are runs coming in. Odds are pretty good two runs are coming in. Mm-hmm. It's not as though, it's not as though the Giants were in a position of strength. I, uh, so I was in uh, right center, not in the field, but in the stands uh, at the time. And so I had uh, a pretty good view of that play, actually. And as it was happening, I don't know if this would hold up to scrutiny upon uh, watching replays. But from my angle, it looked like he had uh, an easy out at second, and Ramos was running. And so I was thinking, you might get a double play if you go to second, and no chance at third. When he turned to third, I, before the throw was even made, I, I knew game was over. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, I don't know. It, I don't know if he actually had him at second or not, uh, but it looked it looked like it. That was a very aggressive bunt call from Matt Williams, right? With two strikes mm-hmm. on on Ramos, keeps the bunt sign on. Right hander against the left hander hasn't laid down a sacrifice successfully in four years, um, and uh, and a force at third, and a guy who can't run, so it could be a double play too. Mm-hmm. Uh, very very aggressive. I, on the one hand, you say that's why 
the bunt can be so dangerous is that yeah. you put the pressure on the defense to make a play. You never know what can happen. You put the pitcher in a position to make throws he's not used to, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and inning can get crazy out of hand as it did. Um, uh, if if he had fouled the ball off for strike three, would we be having a, a very different conversation <laughs> right now? In fact, you could maybe argue that that Bumgarner's bigger mistake is that is just giving him a ball he could bunt on an 0-2 count. Uh-huh. That that at that point, I don't know how much you can pitch for the strikeout, and maybe he didn't know the bunt was still on, so maybe yeah. he's pitching to a hitter, a major league hitter. Uh, but if you knew that, if if he had known that 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 the bunt was still on, I wonder if he throws a different pitch there and gets mm-hmm. a little bit greedy and pitches for the for the strikeout, because at that point it becomes kind of easy to to get a strikeout uh, or a, a certainly easier. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're right. And yeah, I mean, that is something that we don't normally factor in when we're looking at whether a bunt is a good play or not. It's every now and then something crazy happens and and you get someone throwing it away and you get an extra base. And that is something that factors into the numbers when you look and see whether a bunt is the right play or not or how, how bad a play it is. There's always that remote possibility that something really good will happen, even better than just advancing the runner. So it's it's part of the calculus. But yes, you're right. Um, and Bryce Harper um, had a, a catch that, in retrospect, we might say was a game a game saving catch early in the game. The Giants kind of won rally uh, against Doug Fister. Uh, they had runners on. Brandon Crawford hit a ball into deep left center, and uh, Harper caught it at the wall. Denard Span said, probably the best catch I've seen him make all year, to be honest. All year I've seen him be tentative with the wall out there. So to me, that was the best catch. Normally he shies away from the wall. He had no fear. He went back and kept his eye on the ball and made an unbelievable play. Harper had a, a, a big walk during the Nationals rally. I think, what, he homered, right, in the eighth? Mm-hmm. Yep. Eighth Har- or ninth? Harper shies away from the wall? Uh, since his thing. Mm, okay. Yeah, that's that's been a narrative mm. um, about him since then. Uh, and, uh, although he never will, he, he swore he never would. Right. Uh, I forgot. I forgot about that quote where he uh-huh. was never, he was never going to let a wall tell him <laughs> yes, how to play. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, I honestly, at this point, legitimately don't know what the Bryce Harper narrative is going to be at the end of this postseason. I guess it depends if the Nationals win. Cause he went over seven in game two and was seen as like a huge choker. Uh, but then, I mean, that was a, the, I don't know if people will remember that catch. It wasn't, I don't know if it was light catch. Uh, I don't, and then the home run was a mop up home run yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did have the big home run against, uh, Strickland in game one, but that was like a solo shot down by three, I think, or down it by was, yeah, down three, nothing. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know if people come out of this talking about how Harper is a superstar, which is what he has kind of looked like to me for parts of the series mm-hmm. or if they will say he has been uh, a, a win probability added killer for the nationals and uh, it's still part of the problem i honestly don't know but he kind of looked like a superstar yesterday it was a big game it's a huge game yeah. uh, and it was probably me- a memorable game should be a memorable game mm-hmm. all, right. all right that's it Okay, so please support our sponsor, Baseball Reference. Going to baseballreference.com, subscribing to the Play Index using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. And there are no games tomorrow, so maybe we will do some emails maybe the next day or so. So send them, if you have them, at podcast at baseballperspectus.com.